Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. <laughs> Welcome to the latest Bicycling Australia podcast, powered by Zwift. Zwift is the fitness app where fun is fast. This podcast is a Tour de France special, and shortly we're going to be speaking with five-time Tour de France rider Patrick Yonker and TDF analyst and specialist Anthony Tan. Anthony, of course, also writes Spin Cycle in each edition of Bicycling Australia magazine. Pat Yonker in Adelaide, how are you going? Yeah, good, thanks. Uh, we're locked down, but I'm um, still able to ride the indoor trainer, so going good, thanks. Yeah. And, and man, you're like me in Sydney, um, locked down as well. Yeah, there's not much you can do. I mean, I didn't have anything else to do, Nat, so I couldn't refuse your, requ- your request to join the podcast. you got a column I've just received for the next edition of the MAG, and it's pretty interesting what you've been saying about the Tour de France. Can we start by asking you about that Brittany start? Was it a mistake? I don't think it was because, you know, you have to remember, you know, they came in when, you know, the tour couldn't be held in Copenhagen. So I think it, it was good of them to that, that region to host the start. It's hosted a start before, you know, I, I know I've been there before and um, the – the riders have been there before. It's, I guess it's, you know, it's uh, it, there's there's two ways to look at it, and um, you always have the, I guess, a number of the riders were saying the court and the directors were saying the course is too dangerous, and then the, you know you had the race director defending themselves, and even some of the sport directors were defending the course, and you know you had sport directors like. Jonathan Waters saying it's the only race of the year where the riders don't use brakes and the stakes are so high and they were compounded by COVID because, you know, some of the riders, like last year, didn't know maybe the calendar was going to end after the tour, depending on the pandemic. So the, the situation was evolving all the time externally and so perhaps internally that bubble made it even more intense. Mm. Do you see that when you're watching these days? Does it look faster and just more furious than when you were actually in that in the bunch in that peloton? Yeah, I mean, uh, I agree with 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 Tanner, um, and also agree with uh, Jonathan Vorders that uh, there are brakes on the bikes, and um, we're reluctant to use them during the Tour de France. So, from my experience, uh, these crashes are not new. I think. Uh, if you can uh, go to YouTube and look at the 97 Tour de France and 98 Tour de France, it's very similar circumstances as this year where we were crashing every every hour or so there was a crash. Mm-hmm. And um, like um, Tan mentioned, and the stakes are so high. Um, 
you have in our day we even had more riders than they have today we have over 200 starters and mm. um we're so desperate to get a result our whole life almost revolves around a result at the tour de france you can go into the tour de france on a minimum wage and if you're successful you come out with a million dollar contract so wow. if you're a kid from the suburbs and um you're absolutely going to be very hungry for a piece of the pie and the pie's mm. not big enough and the guys are just so ruthless and that's just racing it i don't think it will will change yeah, and I guess coverage and technology's got a bit to answer for too, doesn't it? Everything is watched, so if there is a crash, even just five or ten years ago, you'd hear Phil or Paul say, oh, there's been a crash, but, you know, if it's down behind, you don't see it. These days, everything that happens is covered, isn't it? So maybe that's a little bit of an influencing factor, what we're seeing. Tan, you, you mentioned this 23% attrition rate in the tour. This is this does pretty high, isn't it? Close to a quarter of the riders not finishing. Well, yeah, I had a look at this, uh, the stats, and ever since the tour started, the completion rate, I believe, uh, until just a few years ago, was around 79%. So let's just say 80%. So almost uh, 20% of the riders don't finish on average every year, and then this year was a little bit higher. But you wouldn't say 23 24% is extraordinary so yeah there you know some years yeah you get less like for example last year there was less uh mm. there was riders finishing this year a little bit less so and I, I think yeah there was a number of factors as i mentioned before to attributing to the reasons behind this so you know with that for those crashes probably the only one where the spectator was involved was that first stage and then yeah. uh and then the course design where where some riders complained i think where jack hay crashed and then th that same day when um caleb ewan and peter sagan crashed it's mm. it's debatable whether you can i don't think you can attribute 100 percent of the blame on the race organizers there's just a multitude of factors and i think if you just put it down to one you're just kind of doing that to suit your own perspective really yeah, and yeah, you're right. yeah, yeah that's the way i feel interesting that really does talking cavendish and um oh sorry talking sagan and and uh caleb ewan of course that just leads us straight into mark cavendish so he seemed to be in best ever form or maybe the best since those you know dueling days with him and Marcel Kittel and early Sagan. Was Cav in the best form of his life or was it just the fact that competition was sort of eliminated? I believe Caleb Ewan would have beaten Mark Cavendish um, during this year's Tour de France. What, what do you think, Tan? Caleb, uh, I believe he was in the form of his life. But we will never know, will we? We'll. And also another thing quickly, I don't think Cav will be back next year, next year's Tour de France. So uh, we'll, I guess we'll never know. Yeah, that it's in. Yeah, it's interesting you say that, Pat, because yeah, he looked so bummed, didn't he, when he missed out on that stage along the Champs Elysees? It was almost like he forgot about the four stage wins he had won before. And mm. It was. It, it felt like that banging of his bars was. Oh, that was my last chance. I. I, I don't know. We thought his last chance was a couple of years ago, and then he came back and won four stages, and then. You know, we were talking in the previous podcast. Could he win? He could he could he get to Merckx's 
record you know yeah. that was after one stage win so uh yeah with cavendish uh, who who knows uh, i mean i think we saw we saw a real i think dichotomy of riders who are extremely young doing very well and then we also saw some of the old guard do well at this year's tour you know we had guys like pogachar and uh, Vinegard, you know, finish obviously first and second. Those guys are so young, and maybe mm. I'd like to get Pat's thoughts on that because it's uh, at first people said, yeah, Pogachar's an anomaly, but then now we've had guys like even Egan Bernal win the tour at a very young age, and then yeah, Pogachar and then Vinegard, you know, these guys are only in their early 20s. And my thought was always, you know, these tour riders to be good in GC. I was always thinking that prime age was 27 to 32. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, I mean, most Tour de France riders don't really get find their rhythm until the late 20s, and they carry it on until the early 30s. And um, this is probably the first time since Laurent Fignon in early 80s, when Laurent Fignon came to the Tour de France as a novice and, and won as a debutant. And um, we really haven't, since Podjakar, we have to go back to Laurent Fillon to see this kind of uh, uh, thing happen. And, um, yeah, it's extraordinary. Not, we're not just talking one rider. Like you mentioned, uh, Egan Bernal. Um, we have a group of riders under the age of 25 who are performing like seasoned uh, professionals. And yeah, I've never seen this before. And I think it's a good sign um, for the sport that the naturally talented are coming towards the top uh, quicker than they ever were before. It is exciting to see, um, just as it was to see Welch back up after that, winning the individual time trial. Next day wins the, you know, the the sprint of the year. The, the, how how incredible was that? Did you guys pick him? Did you think he was a de- genuine favourite to win on the Champs Elysees? Not after the time trial. I mean, I thought, well, he completely expended himself to win the time trial i mean i don't i can't recall the tour de france whether i've covered it in the flesh or in the field i should say or uh, observed from afar where a rider has won the individual time trial the day before and then won a mass bunch sprint the very following day so yeah you have to say he he really is and then with that Von Two stage you won, you have you have to say he's pretty much the most complete rider out there, the most versatile anyway. Phenomenal. Then he actually said um, straight away, he said, "Oh, I think I've made some trouble for myself. I have to get to Charles de Gaulle. He was flying Tokyo, obviously, where he's Olympic, you know, the real favourite for the men's road race this Saturday." Um, yeah, look, uh, Saturday um, at four o'clock in the morning, we can watch the Tokyo Olympic road race. And Walt Van Aert, like you mentioned, uh, he had to rush to catch his flight to Tokyo. And um, I don't think anyone expected Walt to win uh, on the Champs-Élysées. But I think we learned at this Tour de France, um, we shouldn't be um, judging. We can't judge Walt Van Aert at all. And uh, mm. we, we, he can do absolutely everything, most versatile rider we've ever seen. But hot favourite for Saturday's road race uh, with four and a half thousand metres of climbing Saturday on a very difficult uh, course with mm. Mount Fuji um, to finish off um, mm. and extreme heat. 
and we've got a whole bunch of riders who have been specifically preparing for the Saturday's uh, Olympic road race, like uh, uh, Ramco van der Neverpool, Podjica will also be there. Um, mm-hmm. It'll be really interesting to see uh, um, if Wild can back up an extraordinary Tour de France with Olympic gold Saturday. Yeah, and in similar elevation to that double von two stage, which he won, um, on the on the Olympic or so, you know, I guess a few months ago we we're thinking which pure climber is going to win the Olympic gold. Um, mm. it really, pointing fingers pointing at Wild, isn't it? No. Yes. Yeah, sorry, I just wanted to mention. Pat said um, that Fuji's. I think he might have said it's the last. I think I. I believe it's the Fuji climb comes with about a hundred kilometers to go, and then there's two more uh, mountains after that. So. Um, but just is uh, yeah, that's I think the final climb, the Kagasaka Pass, yeah, 12 kilometres from the finish, and then there's a Mulkini Pass, 34 kilometres to go. But yeah, so much climbing, so <laughs> yeah, it's de- definitely you, you're not going to see a you're not going to see a sprinter win this one. You know, it'll be yeah in the shape of a Walt Van Aert, and I don't even know if. Julian Alaphilippe's going, but if he is, that would be one for him too. Yeah. Yeah. One one thing for sure, it's going to be um, extremely scenic to watch as they, uh, you know, climb the outer slopes of Mount Fuji and um, finish on the international speedway. So just talking the tour and Olympics, um, this morning on socials I actually saw De Koenig quick step. Um, boasting that Mark Cavendish has just won a post-tour criterium. Amazing. Very obscure race. <laughs> uh, we can't take those things too seriously. Ten men, I believe you've got a question for Pat regarding these post-tour crits um, and, and the Olympics in this Olympic year. Yeah, those post-tour crits are not rigged at all, really. Uh, no, but, yeah, I just wanted to ask Pat, there's such a short time frame between the end of the Tour de France that on July the 18th, and then the the road race, the men's road race this Saturday. I mean, just just a week. Uh, you know, from your experience, can can you recover in time? Like, who does it favour those who have ridden the Tour de France, or uh, and and what w- would an athlete do if they were preparing for a, a one day race straight after the Tour? Yeah, that's a good question, uh, Tani. Um, look, um, you have to remember the last difficult stage of the Tour de France was Friday, and then Saturday was a time trial, which was only an hour of suffering. Um, and then Sunday in Champs-Élysées was only a two and a half hours. So the riders um, between now and Tokyo um, have been put on a plane straight after Champs-Élysées. They caught the last flight to Tokyo. And what's important to remember, they have to keep the body moving. They um, will still be training three to four hours and they will try and keep their body in the Tour de France rhythm of, um, of at least a couple of hours of um, solid, solid training. They're not going to be, um, you know, messing around and keep those legs moving. They have to keep um, the heart and lungs moving. And the big challenge will be time zone, eight different time zones from France to Tokyo. So that's the challenge, the time zone. And um, But I believe it is possible to recover, or not exactly recover, be in fine form Saturday after finishing the Tour de France Sunday. 
and uh, the sleep will be as much of a challenge um, as the fresh legs. And um, they'll be having their rest. The guys like um, uh, Vanar and the boys were having a proper rest after this weekend. That's when they will have a uh, you know week off the bike and maybe even a, a short holiday. But uh, yeah, you can um, finish the Tour de France on a Sunday and be in good form the following as long as you're not injured i think the main thing is you haven't had a crash or nursing an injury so um but um i guess uh, saturday morning we'll find out um, if it's a tour de france rider who wins the olympic gold or somebody who's prepared specifically for it you are listening to the bicycling australia podcast powered by zwift the fitness app that turns indoor riding into a game Explore endless roads, race riders from all over the world, and boost your fitness with monthly training plans and structured workouts. Join the world's training playground where fun is fast. Go to Zwift.com and start your free trial today. Hey, to the women's Olympic race, I believe the women's um, race is on Sunday, and obviously it's still mm. a line-up there. I wouldn't want to be trying to pick a winner. Obviously, um, mm. we've got some really big names. Who, who are you calling, Pat? We'll go with you first. Yeah, so first of all, you know, Sunday morning, um, the women's road race, fantastic uh, course. Shame they don't do Mount Fuji. Uh, Grace Brown, Tiffany Cromwell making a debut from Adelaide. Of course, all eyes on Sarah Giganti. We all know Sarah Giganti, Mm. extraordinary young uh, cyclist. Uh, Amanda um, Spratty, of course, has been around for a lot, for many years. I yeah. really hope to see Giganti do something. Um, you know, I hope she can get up there with a medal. But all yeah. eyes are on Team Holland, the Dutch, mm. the orange jerseys, Anna Mick van Vloten, Anna van der Bergen, Mariana Voss, and uh, mm. Dani Vollringer. So, oh, Mariana is in awesome form. Can she win? Uh, another Olympic gold. Uh, to be honest, the all eyes are on a Dutch team, and let's hope yeah. for Sarah Giganti can cause an upset. And if Sarah gets a medal, that'd be fantastic for Australian cycling, for Australian women's cycling, especially with the Tour de France for women next year. I think there's got a lot more attention now on um, on the, on uh, who will take the gold uh, this Sunday morning in Tokyo. Yeah, I think you know people are. Because there's been more coverage of women's racing the last couple of years, it's been broadcast live in more places around the world. People have become more interested and they've found, they've discovered, you know, it's as interesting as as the men's race. You know, the personalities too, some of them have had careers before. Uh, Some of the women seem to be able to write, you know, have this sort of, uh, late resurgence in 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 life, you know, they they're, they're doing very well in their thirties. Also, same with the men, actually. But mm-hmm. yeah, I agree with Pat. It's hard to look beyond the, the, that Dutch trio, even when you just say their names. You know, they're all they all can win on so many different types of course as well. You know, Mariana Voss. You know, I remember uh, back in the days when I was working at Cycling News in the early two thousands. You know, she she was winning everything no one could beat her you know she was winning everything from mountaintop finishes uh one day races bunch sprints everything and the uh, the other two are almost equally as versatile so uh mm. yeah i know the two aussie there's two aussie girls including amanda spratt you know they had a bad crash at the women's giro leading up so it, a little bit depends on how they've recovered but you know obviously spratty is an excellent 
one day rider, but I, I think all the teams will be looking to Holland to basically dictate the move, set set the pace. So you know that's 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 yeah. That, I think that's how it would unfold. Mm-hmm. Hey Pat, just before the Olympics and all, and just in general, um, future development of Australian cycling. And it was interesting that Simon Jones's position is up for grabs at the moment. So. I just wanted, thought it might be time to um, just ask you how critical that position is and, you know, what sort of person we need in that role, just really looking forward there. Yeah, um, Simon Jones is um, the head of uh, high performance in Australian cycling and a very important position. So Simon Jones employs all the coaches and makes a lot of critical decisions for Australian cycling. Um, he's been, obviously, those following uh, cycling know he's made some very controversial decisions, such as sacking um, legendary coaches as Gary Sutton. And, um, yeah, I think there will be a lot of mixed feelings when um, Simon Jones leaves Australian cycling. And, yes, mm. a very important uh, spot to fill, a uh, position to, to fill. And... Um, um, yeah, uh, there'll be a fair few people putting their hands up for um, to take to fill Simon Jones' um, shoes, but um, it's something that's uh, uh, where they'll be looking globally for this. It's not just looking for an Aussie with a experience in managing um, uh, cycling. Um, this is something global. So who knows uh, who we will get? Um, it's up to the board. Uh, to decide and um, first of all I think all eyes on Olympics and uh, hopefully we get some good results so we get some decent funding heading towards Paris Olympics but yeah uh, I think that's that's massive news that Simon Jones has uh, announced he won't be renewing his contract after after the Olympic Games and uh, yeah let's I personally hope that uh, uh, Aussie gets a position I, I believe that Australians understand Australian athletes better than um, um, people from outside would. Yeah, really interesting, Pat. Um, of course, our current crop of juniors, we're, we're, with that position, we're looking at the next generation, aren't we, the next couple. With our current crop, I'm thinking Jai Hindley, um, Jay Vine, Dylan Sunderland, um, of course, Ben O'Connor, fourth in Tour de France. So we're in the, you know, we've got some green, you know, some big boots ahead. Um, just on that tan man, Ben O'Connor, fourth of the Tour de France. I was just keen to jump back to, to your thoughts on him and his, what he did there. Yeah, I mean, it sort of gets back to what I was saying about all these, you know, just Pogacar not being an anomaly, you know, these guys who are going into the Tour on debut and doing extremely well. Yeah, last year it was Pogacar, this year Vinegard and, and also... O'Connor and so there's clearly a pattern that's developing and then you know he I don't believe he came up through the the national system he's kind of gone this what you know when when you sign for a team like AG2R yeah it's it's not you don't you don't go oh that's a logical um, progression for an Australian rider, you know, that I'm thinking of, I remember Simon Gerrans, you know, he was riding for a, an amateur team in Nantes and then he, he went across to AG2R and he was the first Australian to ride for that team. Mm. So uh, it's, yeah, it, it's not, it's not like uh, it's, it's never happened before, but 
Yeah, for him, yeah, it feels like he's come out of nowhere. But he, if you look at his Palmares so far, yeah, he's had some pretty decent results. But I guess for a French team to invest in an Australian rider, and they've also said that they're going to uh, invest further and make him definitely, you know, a leader, and they want him to be with the team for the next few years, you know, that's that's a really big deal given how parochial the the french teams are yeah, so sure. uh it's I, I think you know that achievement of fourth place it's it's almost i want i won't say it's as good as a win but it, it, it's definitely up there like I, I i feel like uh yeah it's good to see australian riders come up through yeah the national program and but then also um sort of carve their own path as well just before we wrap it up, uh, Pat Yonker and Anthony Tan, I wanted to quickly um, throw some uh, to- throw the topic over to Lockie Morton. That race within the race, if you like, his five and five thousand odd kilometre lap of France was just phenomenal. Um, Pat Yonker, maybe we'll please just start with your thoughts on on Lockie Morton of EF um, Education first. What he did in in France while the Tour de France was underway. Yeah, um, extraordinary. I was following Lockie uh, every day on social media, on Strava. To be honest, what 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 a rider! I mean, five and a half thousand kilometres. He's really following in the footsteps of the Tour de France riders of 1903, 1905. The true ethos of the Tour de France is a, a inhumane, barbaric event, and um, Lockie just completed an inhumane, barbaric event, which he created all by himself. And what's most important is the $600,000 he raised for bicycle relief. Um, the money he raised along the line, along along the way. What a what a legend of an athlete! And um, and uh, I hope to see more of these kind of uh, um, challenges. And I think he will. He he'll be. Um, you know, he is a pro cyclist, but he doesn't have the pro cycling mentality. He's not a killer. He's not cutthroat. Uh, he's not one of the riders. He hates the pushing and shoving, and that's why he's not racing the Tour de France. Physiologically, mm. he's probably a top 10 rider, physiologically. Mm. If you put him in a laboratory, uh, Lockie is, 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 is no less than the guys finishing top 10 Tour de France, but he hasn't got the mentality the, the hungry wolves that would, um, when they smell blood, they go for the jugular. Lockie's mm. not like that. He's a really nice guy. In a way, he's too nice for pro cycling. And uh, <laughs> what he's doing now is that is something, yeah, everyone's applauding him. And I think he got uh, more publicity for education first than the riders actually racing the Tour de France. So great work. Tan man, did you, did you follow the, um, the, the alt tour? I, I followed it from about a week in. Like I, I didn't. It's not that I didn't think he'd finish, but uh, but once I started following, it, it became quite addictive, really. And yeah, I completely agree with Pat in that about Lachlan Morton. I, I have interviewed him on a number of occasions. Yeah, and he's quite a thoughtful, gentle person. And yeah, if you compare him with someone like Cavendish, who says that if you put him in on a bike in a lab, he'd do really crap. But you know, he, he's he's motivated by just a desire to keep winning. And mm. Lachlan Morden clearly is not that type of person, not that type mm. of rider. Uh, you can't you can't just make someone into 
a killer. You know, it's just almost they're almost born in a way. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I, I thought what he did, yeah, was truly remarkable. I mean, I don't think he ever slept in a uh, you know under a roof for the whole. You know, he's, he was camping out on the roadside. You know, no, there's, there's so many. There were so many things that could have happened to him along the way, adverse things uh, to stop, prevent him from getting to Paris. But, yeah, really, I think, you know, I was ruminating over what, what you know, what's more motivating, seeing someone like Pogacar dominate the Tour de France or watching this, this guy ride around France by himself and... Um, and and ahead of, and ahead of a pack of 184 riders and make it to Paris without any support whatsoever. I'll, I'll probably have to lean towards Lachlan Morton. This has been the Bicycling Australia podcast powered by Zwift. A huge thanks to Anthony Tan and of course Patrick Yonker for their expert analysis. For more on the Olympic Games, visit www.bicyclingaustralia.com.au. And for a lot more on Lachlan Morton, make sure you grab the next edition, the September-October edition of Bicycling Australia magazine. This is editor Nat Bromhead speaking. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.